Well, I hope that all of you are able to come and join us for our Super Bowl party later today at 4 o'clock. Uh, we're going to have food. We're going to watch some football, play some football, play some games, uh, invite your friends. It should be a great time. Uh, but this morning, what we want to do is turn our attention towards the Word of God. Um, now, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever had an experience in your life that just felt really sweet. It felt good, and it felt like it was the way things were supposed to be. In fact, it made you think that this is the way that, that life really always should be, and maybe you've even started to wonder why life isn't always like that. Uh, well, this last week, uh, my wife celebrated her birthday, uh, and uh, in doing so, we celebrated her. Uh, as many of you, uh, if you know her, you know this. You know that uh, I am undeserving of the affections of this godly woman. She, um, she is beautiful. She's glorious. She fears God. She loves others. She's a servant. I can't find enough adjectives to describe her. But the one thing that she wanted to do for her birthday was actually just spend time with me for 24 hours with uninterrupted attention. Well, I was like, Is that, are you sure that's not my gift? So uh, we did that, um, got to just get a, have a staycation, spent time together, uh, went and saw a play, um, got to spend time talking, uh, time uh, going out to dinner, just had an excellent time. Uh, she also took me up Squaw Peak, which did not feel like Eden, felt more like judgment, but it was good. <laughs> it was good. We had a good time. I loved it, honey. And um, it was after that, uh, we had a birthday party with the family, and the kids were there, and then we played games with the kids that night. And at the end of the day, it just was one of those things where you breathe in and you breathe out, and you're like, this is, this is good. This is the way that life is supposed to be. But after that weekend, um, this morning I woke up at four and for some reason was just like bombarded with thoughts about the brokenness of this world. It was, it was really kind of a hard couple of weeks. And, and so uh, in my own life, I, I, I was just, um, just being reminded of the fact that G and I had gotten COVID finally. I mean, it feels like, and everybody else got it, it was our turn. And so we had COVID, and, um, and then in the midst of that, we found out that um, some beloved church members uh, had died. Um, godly saints uh, found out that had another uh, brother who loves Jesus. Uh, the cancer just uh, took over a little bit more of his body. Uh, found out another brother, a friend, uh, his dad suddenly out of nowhere just died. Um, and the, the list goes on, and there's, there's parenting struggles, and uh, and then you, you begin to, as you're praying through and thinking through these things, you find in your own heart, all of this brokenness begin to invade the way that you're viewing God and others. And you begin to question the, the goodness of God and the kindness of God. And you just wonder in the midst of all of this, why does the world feel so broken? Why does it feel like everything is so wrong? And I was fighting to capture my thoughts, even this morning, as I kind of fell into praying. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever one of those situations where you're bombarded with these things, and you didn't intend to start praying, but then you start praying because you just feel overwhelmed by these things, and you're asking for God's intercession, and you're also praying for God's help to hope in Him in the midst of that? And that's where I find myself. Have you caught yourself ever asking, as you thought about the nature of the world as it is today, what is wrong with this world, this place that I'm in? What's wrong with others? What's wrong with me? Well, I think in Romans 5, 12 to 21, 
The text we began last week as Mal was leading us through, I, I believe that Paul, what he's trying to do is explain that the reason this world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to actually goes back to a reason that is actually outside of you. It's a reason that goes all the way back to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. That sin that left all of humanity under the, the power and the reign of sin and death. Now, I'm not going to retread all of Pastor Malachi's excellent work from last week. I'm grateful for what he did. But I do want to remind us that every human is born in Adam. And we are sinners both by nature and by choice. We are born both corrupt, we're broken, we don't work the way that we were created to, and we are also guilty before God. Now, Paul, it's interesting. As he's going through, as you read, you'll notice that it seems as though he just assumes that everyone that he's speaking to in this church in Rome, Jew and Gentile uh, believer alike, are on the same page as far as original sin goes. But, but did I mention that Romans 5 through 8 are some of the most encouraging chapters in all of the Bible? And so you might think to yourself, why in the, one of the most encouraging sections of the Bible would we focus on Adam and, and the brokenness of this world? Well, it's because these chapters, they really do describe for us the new reality that exists for those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The reality that we were born into in Adam is not our reality anymore. We are living in a, a new era under a new reign with new expectations. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is trying to do here in Romans 5 to 8. See, here's what I think Paul's doing in verses 18 to 21 that we find ourselves in today. Uh, Paul wants to remind Christians who are beleaguered by the overwhelming brokenness that surrounds them that God's grace in Christ is abundantly more than what we lost in Adam. That's the, the thing that he wants to remind us of. The, the grace that is ours in Christ, it's, it, it brings to us something that is not just going to have us break even, but it's going to bring us abundantly more than what we had in him. And so if, our, if you're writing notes, this is a great place to write down our big idea this morning. This is what we're going to be thinking about. It's this, that we've gained so much more in Christ than what we lost in Adam. We've gained so much more in Christ than what we've lost in Adam. And I hope that as we go through these verses, you see that that's, that's what exactly Paul is, is doing for us. You'll remember that this section, he is comparing Christ with Adam. And he is showing us all throughout how much greater Christ is than Adam. And so that's what we're going to look at here today. Now, our first point is this. The cross of Christ triumphs over Adam's fall. The cross of Christ, it triumphs over Adam's fall. We see this in verses 18 and 19. Now, as Paul was speaking in verse 12, he kind of trailed off. But he, he picks back up here in verse 18 with the ideas that he began there. And what we find in verse 18 is this. He says this. We're just going to look at the first half of the verse. He says this. Therefore, is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Okay, we need to just stop right there to understand what he's saying. Here's the first thing that we see here in verse 18. Adam's sin resulted in every human's guilt and death. Adam's sin resulted in every human's guilt 
and death. Now, you'll remember last week, you heard a quote from Benjamin Harris's 1690 New England Primer, where he expressed the condition that we all experience as humans in Adam. He says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. See, all trespasses, all of our trespasses, ultimately go back to ground zero of Adam. Now, verse 18 says this. Uh, You'll notice that he says that there was one trespass, and as we've talked about before, trespass is a kind of sin where there's a a clearly laid out law that has been broken. Now, you you don't need to have that clearly written out law to sin. There are all kinds of ways that we sin, but the law brings in a different degree of sin. We are directly disobeying the law that's been given to us as well as the lawgiver. Well, Genesis 2 tells us that that Adam committed a a trespass because when he was placed in the garden, he was originally told in Genesis 2, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's the law. Don't eat of that tree. There are lots of trees to eat from, just don't eat from that one. And Adam ate the fruit of that tree in Genesis 3. And Paul says that that one trespass led to, or better yet, it resulted in the condemnation of all of humanity. Now, as you look at verse 18, you'll notice that it speaks of the way this trespass led to condemnation. I think led to actually, if you look at it, comes from a a little preposition, it just means two in the Greek. So led is being added there. I think a, a better way of saying this, a more wooden way of saying this, as we read in some of the other translations, would be something like this. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness resulted in justification in life for all men. They're actually in a verb series. He's just talking about how the trespass goes with condemnation and righteousness goes, for, goes with justification. Now, this word for condemnation, it means that not only have we been pronounced guilty, but there is a handing down of punishment as a result of that, that guilt that we incur. And, and I think that punishment, as we look through the way that Paul is describing it, is a kind of present punishment of the wrath of God abiding on us, as also it's looking forward to a future kind of condemnation to death, both uh, uh, for us spiritually. Now, now let me break that down. I, I take this to mean that Adam's sin left every human condemned to death physically and spiritually. So don't miss this. Paul says every human is born guilty of Adam's sin. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, in what way am I guilty before God? And I think it's a good question. And I'm gonna borrow and edit Francis Turretin here a little bit, which I'm always really cautious about doing stuff like that. But, but you can go back and read him and, and maybe you'll be more helped by him, but this is the way that I understand our guilt before God. He said that there are three things that make humans guilty in the sight of God. The first is that every human stands guilty for really sinning with Adam because we were physically there. We, we are physically connected to Adam. All of us, every human ultimately comes from Adam. Um, second, 
The guilt of the corrupt nature has been imputed to us in Adam because he is our covenant head. So there's a real sense in which we are imputed with guilt because of the fact that we are in Adam. And then third, we are also guilty for all of the post-fall sins that we commit. Now here's the the awe-inspiring reality that I think that if you're anything like me, you just fight against wanting to believe, and that's this. Our default setting that we are born with is not innocence, but that we are guilty sinners, and our nature is actually bent against God and towards sin. Now, this reminds me a lot of of my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother, she had a whole string of dachshunds, uh, love dachshunds, and uh, my grandfather liked to taunt them, and so they were all really mean dogs. But my grandmother thought they were so sweet. So she would snap at me, and the dog would, not my grandmother. Uh, and, and, and I wouldn't do anything. And when, she would snap, when the dog would snap at me, I would always be like, whoa, what's wrong with this dog? And she was like, the dog, what's wrong with you? What'd you do to her? She thought her dogs were sinless. Well, one day, my mom was caring for her when she was sick, and uh, she, she saw her dog, Shirley, come in. And the dog had blood on his face, or her face, and, and, and a little fur. And there was a, a dead rabbit carcass outside. And my mom said, oh no, oh no. Grandpa, you, your dog has, been, uh, has, has killed a bunny and eaten it. And she goes, no, my dog would never do that. But the blood and the fur and the dead carcass, she's like, there must be some other explanation. My dog would never do that. And I think a lot of us think of ourselves kind of in that same sort of way. And if it's not with us, maybe it's our kids. We think there's no way that we are born sinners. Or maybe it's easier if you've had kids to know that we are naturally sinners. But I think it's even harder for us to think of ourselves as sinners based on a kind of corporate solidarity with with Adam. And yet that seems to be the clear teaching of the scriptures. You know, add add to that, we live in such a super independent age. And I believe that Phoenix is uniquely independent. I mean, we are people who love our guns and our big trucks. We like to pull into the driveway and let the the garage door drop before we get out of our cars. We're an independent kind of people. We vote independent. And it's hard to stomach the idea of being lumped into guilt because of someone else. But let me tell you this, it's not unique to us that this is hard to accept, the words of scripture. In fact, Blaise Pascal, Hundreds of years ago, penned his thoughts on original sin. He said this, without a doubt, there is nothing more shocking to our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has implicated in its guilt men so far from the original sin that they seem incapable of sharing it. This flow of guilt does not seem merely impossible to us, but even unjust. Certainly nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine, and yet, before his mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible even to ourselves. See, Paul here in our text, I think he's assuming original sin as the answer to why all people are under the reign of sin and death. But he's doing something more. As we look at verse 14, we find that he is showing us that Adam and all that was lost in him is just a type and a shadow of something better. 
And that something better is Jesus Christ, the thing to whom which Adam points. Because take note, in the second half of 18, Paul says the cross of Christ resulted in justification and life. That is the something better that has come with Jesus. He says in verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What is that one act of righteousness that he's speaking of? Well, it's the cross. Now we can't think of the cross apart from that perfect righteous life of Jesus who obeyed the Father in every single way. In his thoughts, in his actions, in his words, all was obedient to the Father. And yet we find here that the cross is the kind of epicenter of the moment where there was an act that was done that points back to one act that led to the fall and points forward and points to the reality that we have from what he did at the cross. See, the power of the cross of Christ, that's where Jesus died for our sins to satisfy God's just wrath for us and to credit us with the very righteousness of Christ. That has changed our reality if you were a Christian. That cross is not just history. It is your story. It is what Christ has done for you so that you are no longer living the same reality that you would be apart from what Christ did at that tree at Calvary. See, for those in Christ, we are no longer under the power of sin and death. We were. We we were absolutely under the tyrannical reign of sin and death. But we now possess justification and eternal life. Death reigned in verse 14 in Adam. But now life reigns for us who are in Christ. I love the word for for life here as you read it through Romans. It's it's a word that actually carries a kind of eschatological meaning. So Paul, I think here, is actually saying that justification leads to eschatological life, a life that we are already enjoying in part now, but that just is a foretaste of the fullness that is yet to come. So let me make a couple of clarifications here. These are, these are hard verses in text. But one, one clarification is this. It may seem like the cross of Christ just kind of returned to us what was lost in the garden. And maybe that's the way that you think about Jesus. That he just kind of brought us back to even. We had lost a lot, and Jesus kind of brought us back to Maybe not even fully even, but kind of even. It's just not as bad as it would have been if not for Jesus. But that's not the picture that Paul gives. He says that we actually have much more than what Adam had in the garden. And we'll have much more than what Adam even could have dreamed of. You know, today, if you're in Christ, you enjoy not merely your own righteousness that may fail you, you have been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ that does not fail. That is a beautiful gift that is more than what Adam had. Because you're united to Christ by faith, you are counted righteous before God. And you're not standing merely on your own two feet. You are standing in the grace of God before God. You're already enjoying the life of the future age as you await its fulfillment. 
And second clarification, right here, quickly. Paul's clearly not advocating for any kind of universalism. When he says the the cross resulted in justification in life for all men, he's not saying that everyone equally partakes in the cross of Christ and the benefits that have been given to the people of God. Now, he's already shown us in chapter 3 that justification is by faith alone. And so he's saying that anyone who is saved, anyone who has put their faith in Christ, Jesus is the only way to receive the benefits of the cross. And Paul's already shown that one is only justified by virtue of their faith union with Christ. But notice also in verse 19 that he gives us another image that in some ways is just a repeat of what he said in verse 18. He says, sinners in Adam, you're either a sinner in Adam or righteous in Christ. Now verse 19 is essentially saying the same thing as verse 18. Look what he says. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now Paul might highlight here the difference in status. I I think that's at least what he's doing. So those in Adam are designated as sinners by virtue of their relationship to him, just as those in Christ are declared righteous by virtue of their relationship to Christ. This likely reflects how Adam is a, a type of covenant head in the same way that Jesus is a covenant head for those in Christ. So as goes the king, so goes the people. But take note of a a couple of important observations here. First, every human became a sinner in Christ. Every human became a sinner in Christ. I I was uh, reading a fifth century bishop, a guy by the name of Theodore Seer. And he was commenting on verse 19. And when he got to verse 19, and you notice that he speaks of the many, and not all. Many fell into sin. And as he was commenting on this, he explained it as Paul saying, many and not all, for we find, he says, some ancients who did not sin, like Abel and Enoch and Melchizedek and the patriarchs. I think he should have stopped at the patriarchs. Because if you read the stories of the patriarchs, you'll notice that it's very clear that our patriarchs were not perfect, that the Bible actually emphasizes the fact that they had sinned. But he said that some don't need Jesus. Now, that's clearly not what verse 19 is saying. Paul has in mind here what he has spent the last three chapters showing, that none are righteous. No, not one. Left to themselves, we are only justified by faith in Christ. That's the only way. But don't miss this. What this verse, I think, is is communicating for us is the reality that there are really only two spiritual zip codes. You know what a zip code is? Like where you find a, a house. You know, in Phoenix, we have lots of zip codes. Spiritually, there are only two zip codes. The one is the zip code of being in Adam, a zip code where sin and death reign. It's not the kind of place that you want to move into, but it's the place that everybody's born into. The, the second zip code is, is being in Christ. That is the place where grace and life reign. And that is the place where we enter into by faith. Anyone that puts their faith in Jesus, they, they are in Christ and they partake of being in him and all the benefits of what it means to be in Christ. And so 
the grace that we read about in the scriptures, the grace of being in Christ, really is so much greener than the other zip code. Because second, second just clarification here, we actually possess property in Christ by faith. Uh, this last week I was just meditating on this text and uh, got kind of turned around and uh, called a friend of mine, Dr. Jennings, who uh, has worked through some of these issues. And he, he pointed me towards a helpful quote by John Murray. And John Murray explains that just as Paul speaks of us really being there with Adam in our sin, there is a sense in which we really have ownership of the righteousness of Christ by faith. Uh, John Murray describes our union with Christ as being, and I quote, given property in the obedience of Christ with the result that his judicial status is that belonging to the obedience in which he has come to have property. This is the act of grace involved in being constituted righteous. Let me just break that down a bit. What he's saying, I think, in part is that when we put our faith in Christ, the union that we have in Jesus and with Jesus is so strong that we actually gain property in Christ's obedience such that we have real ownership in it just as we have real ownership of the sin and guilt that we possessed in Adam. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we take possession of property in him, which turns to take possession of and transform us. There is a real sense in which union of Christ means that you have grabbed a hold of and possessed something that is possessing and changing and transforming you. Now, an alien righteousness that comes from Christ is going to work inside of us who have put our faith in Jesus. Now, this is why Augustine went on to say, not only that in Adam, Adam was able to sin and able not to sin before the fall, but after the fall, he, he went on to say man was able to sin and able not to sin, and not able not to sin. That's a bad place to be when you're not able not to sin. But Christ brings us into a new state of affairs. And Augustine defined it as this, the regenerate man or woman, that person who's put their faith in Jesus, is able to sin and able not to sin. And you might right now think, even as you hear those words hit your ears, think, I don't feel that way all the time. And it's a lie from hell that tells us that we must sin because Christ has freed us from the domain of sin and death. But one day we know that we are not yet what we shall be. One day we are promised an even greater reality. And Augustine uh, speaks of this restored reality that's going to come to us when Jesus returns. And that's this, that though Adam had a place in the garden before sin, where he was able to sin and able not to sin, he could not have imagined the reality that is coming for you and me, where man is able not to sin and man is unable to sin. Can you imagine that day? With all of the pain and the fighting that, that we have inwardly as we're trying to fight sin, that a day is coming when we will be unable to sin? And yet that's one of the gospel promises that we are given that's going to arrive in the new heavens and the new earth. That no longer will we even be able to do such a thing. 
Do you see it? Jesus doesn't just restore what Adam has lost. He doesn't just help us break even. That would be a win. But Christian brothers and sisters, we've gained so much more in Christ than what we lost in Adam in the future. It only goes up from here when he returns. Okay, that's point one. We only have one other point. Second. Second. Where sin increased, grace super increased and reigned. Where sin increased, grace super increased and reigned. I kind of just want to keep reading that, but we see that in verses 20 to 21. Now Paul's been talking about sin and death reigning from the time of Adam to the time of Christ. And a natural question arises about the purpose of the law because there was a lot of time between Adam and Moses. And so there's a question I'm sure that was raised in the minds, particularly of Jews who received the law, as to like, what's the purpose of the law? Was the law supposed to make us sin less? Was the, the law supposed to make us more righteous? And if so, did it fail to accomplish what God intended for it? How does the law fit into all this? Uh, he says first, in the first part of verse 20, he explains, now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's Paul's explanation. Now let me just be clear. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the law as being good in Romans seven twelve, And in it, we know that it, it reveals the, the character of God. But from the perspective of a fallen sinner, in other words, from another perspective here in this text, from those who are unable at this point not to sin in Adam, Paul says the law is actually a dangerous thing. See, the law doesn't play a chief role in God's plan in these verses the way that, that Paul is describing it. He's describing it as almost having a subordinate kind of role. Now, this would have been important for Jews. Many Jews saw the purpose of the law as being to restrain sin and encourage righteous living amongst God's people. But Paul here is flipping that on its head. Rather than seeing the law as a kind of police officer that's there to, to make sure everybody's acting right, intending to curb sin and encourage righteousness, he envisions the law as more of an accomplice to sin and death. The law did not stop sin and death. It aided and abetted and bringing humanity, that's us, into bondage. In fact, commentator Frank Thielman, he's talking about this text, and he actually says that he sees here the law being personified by Paul through this description of how the law came in. He says that word for coming in actually has a kind of negative connotation to it, the kind of picture of a criminal that kind of slips in. As one Greek dictionary says, to join surreptitiously with evil intent. That is to increase the trespass. Now, God's purpose here in verse 20 is that the law was given to increase the trespass. Now that's not God's ultimate aim of the law. God didn't ultimately aim to increase trespasses. No, God's ultimate aim with the law is to magnify the power of his grace and impart life. But here, the arrival of the law is marked by a precipitous increase in sin. Now, some have taken that this means that the law 
make sin more attractive. And so we sin more because the law is there that says, don't do this. And then we're like, oh, I didn't even think to do that until you told me not to. And now I really want to. Now, that, that might be in there. Romans 7, 7 to 11 seems to say that, that that's a reality, a real state of affairs. But I think this focuses more on the objective reality of sin. And the way that it increases due to the law. Now, how does it increase the, due to the law, the, the sin? Well, this could happen in a couple of ways. Uh, some say that it increases the number of sins. And others say that it increases the seriousness of sin, the sins that are committed. In other words, if you break a clear law, then it's worse than breaking a law that's gone unstated. Well, those supporting the view that this increased the seriousness of sin would just point that trespass is singular here. I, I think that might be reading too much into it. I take it that both the number of sins and the seriousness of sins increased due to the law. Uh, Y'all can talk about that over lunch. But the main point here is, is that sin and death reign with increasing power as the law arrives. Sin and death did not prove to be less with the arrival of the law, it proved to be more. In fact, if you just look at the history of Israel, when they received the law, Moses couldn't even get down off the mountain before they'd broken them all. And, and then they had the law, and as you trace the history of the people of God in Israel, what you find is, is that they continue to sin worse and worse until finally God has to push them out of the promised land where God's people were supposed to meet with God. So there was an increase in sin. See, God did not send the law hoping that it would fix Israel and make them holy, thinking that surely this is the kind of people that could pick themselves up by their bootstraps if I just gave them the directions. And when that didn't work, he didn't decide, oh, well, I guess I need to bring out the big gun, Jesus Christ, to truly help humanity's people. No, God understood that the law would reveal the, the true need that we have and point us towards our need for Jesus Christ. I think that John Calvin offers a, a really helpful illustration of, of Paul's point here in his commentary. He says, he indeed teaches us, being Paul, that it was needful that men's ruin should be made more fully discovered to them in order that a passage might be opened for the favor of God. They were indeed shipwrecked before the law was given. They're already shipwrecked. As, however, they seemed to themselves to swim while in their destruction. They were thrust down into the deep that their deliverance might appear more evident when they thence emerged beyond all human expectation. Nor was it unreasonable that the law should be partly introduced for this end, that it might again condemn men already condemned. For nothing is more reasonable that men should, through all means, be brought, no, forced by being proved guilty, to know their own evils. We needed the law to show us how desperately we needed God to save us. I mean, I love the image here. We were shipwrecked. And we imagined that we were swimming and saving ourselves. And God says, you don't know how dead you are drowned at the bottom of the sea. You don't need a life preserver. You need to be raised from the dead. See, the law does force us. It makes us look with wide eyes 
to see clearly who we are as sinners in Adam. That was what God said about our rebellion. It's true. What God said about others is true. What God has said about our broken world that is so sin-laden and full of death, it's true. But there's good news. Here's the good news. He says, but where sin increased, are you ready for this? Grace abounded all the more. That's good news for sinners dead in the bottom of the ocean. See, the text literally says, where sin increased, grace super increased. The law revealed how hopelessly powerless we are under the reign of sin and death. The only thing worse than the present was the future wrath that awaits those who are in Adam. But here what Paul wants Christians to see is the super abounding power of the grace of God to deliver sinners. That's that's where the, the emphasis and the exclamation mark is here. Did you catch the purpose in verse 21? The purpose of his super increasing grace? He says it's so that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned and reigns in the sphere or domain of death for those in Adam. Just as verse 14 said, death reigns, but a greater power has invaded us. It has lavished us with the grace of God through the saving righteousness of God that comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. It makes us right with God. It transforms us more into the image of the righteous Son, Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to the next until Jesus returns to finish what he has started. See, Paul, Paul here wants Christians to see that the power of sin and death, it is no match for the power of the cross of Christ. Now hear me clearly. You, you can't undo what Adam has done to you and for you and what you have done in him. But Jesus can. Sin is powerless before Christ. If sin reigns, grace floods. If sin is a, a wave, then the grace of God is tsunami. If sin is a lake, God's grace is an ocean. If sin feels like a strong breeze, God's grace is a category six hurricane. These are the images that he wants to give us of the, the kind of comparing of the power of sin to the power that is ours by virtue of the power of the cross. It reminds me of a scene that I recently saw in Boba Fett. I, I kind of like Star Wars. You're okay with that? I hope y'all are okay with that. But I was watching it with my sons, and there's this scene where uh, he has taken the throne of Jabba the Hutt. His siblings, the Hutt twins, they initially are trying to take the throne back from him and claim it as their own, but they fail to do so, and they decide, hey, this is too much trouble. We're outie. But we want to leave you with some tribute and so they left him with a gift, just to bring about peace, which was this giant monster called a ranker. Now, the ranker comes with a keeper, and he is huge and ugly and terrifying. 
And as you're looking at him, you're thinking, this is not a gift. You know, there's some way in which you're trying to intimidate this guy. But when Boba Fett gets him into his cage, he looks at the keeper. And he says, what's he for? And he says, oh, we train him to fight. And he said, oh. And then he looks back at him dead in the eyes and says, I want to learn to ride this beast. And the keeper looks at him like he's crazy, like his job is to keep this animal. And he says, you want to what? And he says, I want to ride him. I've ridden beasts 10 times this size. And that's the same image I get of Christ staring in the face of our sin. We are terrified, praying in the middle of the morning, seeking for God's mercy, asking for his help, asking him to hold us fast. And when we look to Christ, we see the firm gaze of someone who is strong and mighty and says, I went to the cross to defeat this beast. I've defeated beasts 10 times this size. So how do we apply this verse before the powerful Christ? First, let me encourage you, Christian. I don't know what sin it is that you're struggling with this morning. God's grace is so much more. Let me just repeat that. I don't, I don't really care what sin it is that you're struggling with this morning that you think you have no control over. You don't have control over it. But in Christ, you need to know that his grace is so much more. You have the all-sufficient Christ who is for you. And I know that feeling where, where sin can feel like it's so powerful as you're struggling against it. And maybe you feel powerless before that sin this morning. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's addiction to some substance. Maybe it's uh, you're addicted to pornography. Uh, maybe you struggle to control your desires for eating. Uh, maybe you are addicted to comfort or comfort foods. Maybe you're just self-centered. And you feel like people owe you more help or recognition. Maybe you feel like You've just wasted your life investing in some who've walked away. And it, and it just feels like there's this, this air that sin is just stronger than he who is at work in you. Maybe you feel powerless. But be reminded that you possess property with Christ this morning. Here, here's the good news. When you find yourself crying out to God because it seems like the power of sin... It's just increasing all around you. You watch the news, you experience your family, your own heart. It just feels like the waters are rising. Paul wants to come in and he wants to sit next to you and hold your hand. And he wants to remind you, God's grace is super increasing right now. I don't know how much you feel that sin has increased in power, but just take that. It's like 10 times that. That's the power of Christ. Maybe you should say infinite more. I don't know. But what Jesus did at the cross means that we don't have to sin anymore. It takes prayer and, and faithfulness and a local church and spirit-fueled effort, but don't estimate, underestimate the power of the cross. Second, Christian, for those of you who are facing death or the death of a loved one, be reminded that the reign of grace is also the, retain, the reign of eternal life for those who believe. We need to, to think seriously as Christians about what it means that Jesus has won victory at the cross over not just sin, but death, the result of sin. As the famous hymn says, if we are in Christ, it is not death to die for the saints. For those who are in Christ, the power of the cross means that to be absent from our body is to be present 
with the Lord until the day when Jesus returns, and that's when the dead will be raised first and given indestructible bodies. It's natural and fitting for us to grieve the loss of saints, but as Andy reminded of us earlier this morning, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. See, death has lost its sting, according to Paul, because of the super-increasing grace of God that swallows up death with eternal life for those who are in Christ. We need, to, we need to bore that reality deep into our souls so that we know that we need not fear sin and death anymore. Third, this reality ought to inspire worship and evangelism. If we understand the super-increasing, abounding grace of God that comes to us in Christ, how can we not sing and worship God? I mean, if, if we're not singing, it is not because the music's bad, it's because our hearts have lost focus. God always gives us abundant reason to sing. Maybe off tune, that's me, but loud. And when it comes to evangelism, how could we want to keep others from knowing about the, the super increasing grace of God that is available to them in Christ? Something that could not just change tomorrow, but forever for them. I mean, if we look that deep in, in the recesses of our soul, don't we want to share that with us? Sometimes we're, and I'll say this about myself, just so self-absorbed that we forget about the lavished grace that's been given us. We need to be reoriented towards the grace of God. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, I think there's an obvious application. If you were not in Christ, you were in Adam. If you were not in Christ, you are in the reign of sin and death. This life that at times seems so chaotic, it is a life that is gonna give way to God's wrath for those who are not in Christ. But if you are in Christ, Christ invites you into a kingdom that is eternal. He wants to make you no longer an enemy, but a friend and a child of God. And if you put your faith in Jesus today, you too can have property in Christ in the future. Don't leave here today without doing that, putting your faith in Jesus. Don't leave here today without talking to me about that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you that you have brought us abounding and increasing grace in the moment where all we saw was increasing sin. Father, we pray that you would raise our gaze from our own selfishness towards the abundant grace and mercy that's been given us in Christ. Lord, stir our affections, our loves, our joys, our excitement for the future that is to come. Hold us fast by helping us to know and trust the power of God on display at the cross that unleashed your grace upon us. In the great name of your son that we do pray, amen.